0: turn in your Bibles with me or your devices uh, to John chapter 2, second part of that. I'm continuing my series in the attributes of God, and I come to one of those attributes you know, you don't just look forward to jumping into, uh, the anger of God, and yet, you know, if somebody's angry, you need to know it, typically. Um, because of the consequences. One of the things I realized as you, as you get there to Acts 2, beginning at verse 13, uh, when I became a preacher, I didn't, you know, they, they didn't tell you this in seminary, uh, but you immediately become the head of the church complaint department. And since those days, since I am the head of the complaint department, I've been uh, compiling a list of you know, church complaints, things that people get upset with. Uh, especially related to church. And you can imagine, you know, some of the stuff that's on, on my list, uh, people get upset over the time of the service, over the length of the service, over the temperature in the service, sometimes over the hypocrites that are leading the service. Uh, there are other things we get uh, upset with sometimes over the volume of the service, over technical Uh, glitzes uh, in the service. Um, You can can add to the list, but as you think about that list, evaluate with me this. How many of the things on that list do you ever read in the Bible Jesus getting upset with? See, that changes things. I want to be mad at what Jesus is mad at. I want to love what Jesus loves. And when we compile our own frustration list, we need to ask, is Jesus frustrated at this? I mean, do you ever read in the Bible, you know, Jesus saying something like, New Cove, uh, what's with 930 services? You know, you know 11 o'clock is the holy hour. What are you doing? Or New Cove, you know, what? what's up with the volume? I mean, crank it up. Let heaven ring. Are you ashamed of me? Do you ever read something like, New Cove? one of my favorite complaints, it's on my list. Someone, not just someone, a number of folks have told us, what's with no half and half cream for the coffee? (laughs) And I could just hear Jesus saying, don't you know you can't grow a church without real cream? What do we really hear Jesus frustrated with? I think you could make a case for Jesus frustrated with hypocritical preachers, hypocritical teachers. We can do that. But anything else on the list? Does anything else really frustrate, aggravate, make Jesus mad? Well, we come to a passage of Scripture in John 2 where you're probably very familiar with it, where Jesus runs people out of church. Because he's angry, he's mad, he makes it clear, he demonstrates his anger, Um, and it's not over any of those things that are typically on our list. It's not so much about the hypocrites, that comes later. It's during Passover, and you have to understand when you see the word Passover here, that Passover can mean an event, it can mean a day, it can sometimes mean a week, because Passover... They, you offered the Passover lamb, but it was the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So, a lot of times the word Passover refers to that entire week, and that's the way it is in this passage, John chapter two, because if you got that entire week, you've got animals being brought to the priest to be sacrificed all week long, uh, and that's what's going on here. As as you think of the term Passover, and you think of the many animals that are gathered there to be sacrificed, and Jesus get, gets angry. And before we get into Jesus' anger, I just wanted to kind of qualify it with a few passages. I, I, I put down on your outline Psalm 90, uh, uh, verse 11. Uh, we also had Psalm 103, which was, was, was up here on the slide with that uh, just a little while ago. I love the Psalm 103 passage, which says, Jesus is slow to anger abounding in loving kindness and compassion and mercy. Uh, don't forget that. Jesus doesn't fly off the handle. So if he gets angry, it's only after an, a time of patience. He is slow to anger. It's 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 thoughtful anger, God's anger. Let's look at the passage, though, Psalm 90, verse 11, didn't, before we jump into John 2. Because here's, I think, Something that kind of fits the context of John 2. Psalm 90, verse 11. I love how it starts out with the question. Verse 11. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? Do you? Do do I get that? Who understands that God gets angry when his people don't revere him? When they don't fear him. When they, they don't worship him. Who understands that that doesn't just make him angry. It's like a stronger word, fury. How, how he gets you know his blood boiling and ah uh, he just hates that people don't get he deserves all our praise and our worship that he he does it's due him that we show up on the first day of the week and honor him it's it's his due based on all that he is and all that he has done who gets that God gets angry. See, we get we get that he's slow to anger. And the other passage I gave you in Ephesians 4, which says, be angry and sin not. I just throw that out because it lets you know you can be angry and sin not. In other words, there's this thing called righteous anger that you and I can have, and that's the kind of anger God has. You can get angry and not sin if you're angry at something that is just Something that is due. It's supposed to happen. And it's not happening. Well, worship is supposed to happen. And God says, when it doesn't happen, who understands that that's a problem? Now, I wanted you to have that kind of qualification because as we get into John 2, uh, you see that there's things that aren't happening. Jesus shows up. And he's pretty ticked. pretty ticked. He's hot. When you get into John 2, well, if you go back to Psalm 90 and say, well, yeah, worship isn't happening like it's supposed to be happening. Who gets that that makes God angry? Well, let's start go working our way through the John 2 passage. Let's think about here the anger of God. I, I, I'll i just throw it out for your small group discussion around the dinner table wherever. Uh, to, to think through, what are the things that really anger God? I started to compile a list. I've chosen this passage because I think this is, this is, this is top on the list. And, and, but you, you could start adding to, to that list, what are other things that make God angry? But Psalm 90 says, the thing that a lot of times doesn't get on your list is worship. Worship is the thing that really ticks him off. And we need to see that. So Psalm 2, if we, if we are to know the character of God, we need to know what gets Jesus angry. John 2, verse 13, The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, just to give you a little, uh, a little history, this is show you the difficulty here. Passover is near, so they're about to sacrifice Passover lamb, and then you've got this whole week of uh, the feast of unleavened bread the jews had a law it's jewish law it's not in the bible Jew- the jews had a law if you were within 15 miles of jerusalem it was mandatory you had to go to jerusalem for the passover and the feast of unleavened bread if you were 13 years old or older and you were a man 13 years old and older it was required of you to go to uh the passover and the feast of unleavened bread because of that mandatory requirement, that made the Passover feast the biggest feast the Jews experienced. So this is the largest crowd. They're there for a week. If they're sacrificing animals, it says here, they went up to Jerusalem. Where were they? Verse 12, they were in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is 680 feet below sea level and Jerusalem is 2500 feet above sea level. So when you see the language they went up, they literally went up. You know, some 3100 feet. And if you're pulling or pushing animals, this is, you know, this is an ordeal. And thinking about that ordeal is is, is why we have what we have at this Passover feast is People saying, we can make it easier on you. We will bring the animals. You just come up, and then you can buy animals from us, or you can exchange coinage from us. All those things you need to worship, we will have them, and you can just come, and we'll, we'll sell them to you. So that's the kind of things happening in this feast, and you can see uh, everybody likes life easier, and if you can afford it, you'll pay for ease all day long. And that was happening here. Verse 14, and he found in the temple, you might want to stop and even circle, he found. Because that lets you know right off, he found something which meant, hmm, he probably wasn't supposed to find this. This is, this is, you go into worship, you just expect certain things. He finds something that he had hoped not to find that was out of ordinary. He found in the temple, verse 14, those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at the table. And he made a scourge of cords and uh, drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of money changers and overturned the tables. Now, Uh, if you've got a lot of animals tied up ready for sacrifice, probably not hard to find a cord. So Jesus found some cord, wrapped it up into some sort of whip and goes into the temple and starts using that whip and running people out of the temple. And not only people, but the animals as well and then there's people setting, had, had tables set up with coinage. You needed to worship, you needed to give your tithes and offering in the Jewish coinage. So if you had different coinage, you could exchange it there. So that's what the money exchange that was going on uh, there. Mark chapter uh, 11 tells us that Jesus considered these people robbers. He says, You're making my house of prayer a robber's den. So instead of calling them money changers, he calls them robbers uh, in, in that place. So you understand what's going on. They're exchanging goods with you, but they're they're making a good profit. They it looks instead of looking like a worship service, it looks more like a farmer's market, and you see people buying and selling um, all of their stuff with the clear understanding that they're those there making a profit on the whole deal. Well, Christ has a, a lot of zeal. Verse 16, and to those who were selling the doves, he says, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Uh, a robber's den is another description he gives of that. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will Consume me. That comes from Psalm sixty nine. So interesting. The thing that um, the disciples pick up on is Christ's passion, his heart, his zeal. He was he was consumed with zeal. Have you ever seen a um, a little dog fight a big dog, or a little cat fight a big dog, or you know, if you've seen that kind of thing. Uh, and you've seen the little animal win, you quickly realize it's not about the dog in the fight, but it's about the fight in the dog. And that's what they were impressed with here. There's nothing in the language that says Jesus was big. Matter of fact, he was unseemly. There's nothing that he was powerful. But there was something about his zeal, his passion, his fight. His furor. I mean, he goes into the temple, and he sizes it up and quickly sees he has found stuff there that shouldn't be there. And it's when you realize you've done something wrong, sometimes it doesn't take a big man to show you. Somebody just points it out, and you kind of cower down. You could take him, but, you know, there's that guilt. Ugh, he's, he's right. So he gets this whip, and he starts whipping it around, and he makes it known that they shouldn't be here. And they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. And he quickly drives all that out. And the disciples watching this take place are overwhelmed with Christ's zeal. It says, it's said that when the Messiah would come, that zeal for worship, zeal for the house of prayer, the house of worship, would consume him. And there's one thing that's clear about Christ at this point is He is consumed with a passion to purify and clean up the worship that has become so polluted with consumerism. That's what's taking place. Everybody gets it. Uh, You know, we're all zealous. Let's stop for a little application. We're all zealous for something. From time to time, evaluate your zeal. You know, we're 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 zealous for work. We're zealous for uh, entertainment. We're zealous to eat. You know, what what are we what are we known for? You know, do, do do people say of us, man? He she knows how to find a bargain. They're zealous for the bargain. They're zealous. For good work, they're zealous for their business practices. They always do good at making a profit, or do they see our passion for the things that entertain us? He is—he's a golfer. He's a hunter. He's a fisherman. He's a real sportman. She's an athlete. She is an academician. She's a businesswoman. I mean, how do people? characterize your passion. And does anybody ever characterize you as your passion is? He, she is a real worshiper of God. Zeal for the Lord's house consumes us. See, that's what the disciples saw of Christ. And I think with the conviction that That's the right zeal in this place. And Christ is the only one with it. Everyone else has to be pushed out saying, if you're not here consumed with the worship of God, then why are you here? And Jesus takes the whip and says, leave. This is my father's house. And there should be worship in this place. Not this consumer mindset of being here to facilitate and get, get, get for yourself. I mean, clearly, they were investing in themselves more than they were investing in God. Well, let's go on. Verses 18 to the end. Then the Jews, the Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Now, Jesus is... I think by his own actions, already made it clear why he's doing these things. And these Jews are constantly wanting one more thing. It's like nothing ever satisfies the Jews on who Jesus is. But let me read it all and then explain it. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So there Jesus is obviously saying, you're going to destroy my life. I will die for my people. But after three days, I'm going to raise myself up. I'm going to be the resurrection and the life. He says, if you want a sign of who I am, it's resurrection and life. They didn't get it. They keep pressing. Verse 22, so when he was raised from the dead... His disciples remembered that He said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover, so now they're during this feasting time, during the feast, many believed in His name, observing His signs which He was doing. But Jesus, on His part, was not entrusting Himself to them. For He knew all men, and because He did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for He Himself knew what was in man now turn with me let's see let's let's get into this a little bit more look at who's authority look at Malachi chapter 3 here's a prophecy about Jesus coming Malachi chapter 3 that relates to John 2 the Jews the Jewish priests they would have been familiar with this Malachi' is one of the books that tell us about Christ coming, how he would come. It's the book that tells us John the Baptist is going to be the forerunner. He's going to come just before Christ. All that's here. Uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. So that's John the Baptist. And then the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant... In whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Okay. Okay. Now you've got to get the, uh, the background. It's been prophesied when Jesus comes, he's going to just suddenly show up at the temple one day, which in John 2 he does. And he's going to have it out with Levi, the priest. Who has authority to do anything in church? Only the priests, the elders. So there's a sense in which they're asking the question, who has authority to do what you just did? They already know the answer. Only a priest. Of course, Christ is our high priest. It's important that he's prophet, priest, and king. Here's the reason for his priesthood. He has authority as a priest. John the Baptist was a priest. John the Baptist's dad was a priest. Christ, at his baptism, was ordained a priest. So he comes into the temple with authority. And Malachi 3 says not only does he have authority, because he comes right after John the Baptist, who was a priest, who ordained him as a priest. Not only he have priestly authority, but he has prophesied authority. God has already said he will come, and when he comes, what will he do? He'll purify. He'll clean things up, because things are a mess. Things are polluted with this consumerism mindset. And he will be focused on people's heart. Verse 3, the Lord Wants offerings in righteousness. Not just these things we produce, but from a heart of righteousness. So there's a sense in which the Jews, because they knew this was fulfillment of Malachi 3, says that we know who this is. They should have gladly accepted, as the disciples begin to see, zeal for his house consumes him. This is The fulfillment of Malachi 3. This is the messenger of God. He's appeared in the temple. He's cleansing the temple. He's doing everything the Messiah is supposed to do. And then he acknowledges he is the one who has come to sacrifice himself for us. And in three days rise again. It's all there. And yet they want another sign. See, they don't really want to accept Christ. There are plenty of people who don't want to accept Christ if it means they must change how they're living. Certainly, if you're making a profit in the temple, you don't want somebody coming and kicking your business out the door. There's a lot of kickback here as Jesus begins to talk, but it's pretty clear through the text. If you've been reading your Bibles, who... Christ is. Now, so that's what gets us to verses 24, 25. It's, well, 23 it says, Many believed in his name. After they saw the signs which he was doing, like cleansing the temple, they believed, well, this is Malachi 3 fulfilled. They, they believed. But verse 24, Jesus on his part says, No. I know they get it on the surface. But I'm not giving myself to them because their belief is not really from the heart. They're just seeing the signs. They recognize, everybody recognized cleansing the temple needed to happen. That what was going on was not according to God's word. It wasn't worship. It wasn't offerings in righteousness. We get that. We get it needed to happen. Jesus says, yeah, but you don't get that you need me yet. You don't You don't get that you need a righteous substitute who is Christ alone. So Jesus doesn't give himself, it says, to them. So you, you have those categories. We've got them today. People who say, oh yeah, I, I'm a Christian. I, I believe in God. I hear that all the time. Are you a Christian? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm a, if you mean by that, do I believe in God? Oh yeah, I believe in God. take it further, Well, does zeal for the Lord's house consume you? And you'll get what? Nobody's ever asked me that question. I I don't even know what that, that means. Well, are you overwhelmed with the sacrifice of Christ for you? That you can't but help to start your week with God? That you seek him first and you adore him most and you obey him best and you live for him see that's a whole different story than oh yeah i'm a christian i believe in god and jesus says those people who say oh yeah i'm a christian i believe in god I said i don't entrust myself to them which means the real issue is not have you given your life to christ the real issue is has christ given his life to you Because many people will give their lives to Christ. But that doesn't save you. Salvation is a God thing. God must give his life to you. He must give you something you don't have. Me, something I don't have. And that's called righteousness. I need the righteousness of Christ credited to my account. Or I'll never be holy before heaven's court. I need God to do something for me. And it's here Jesus I'm not doing that for this crowd I'm not giving myself to them well stop and evaluate and apply again has God given himself to you in the person of Christ and you if your answer is well I'm not sure I, I don't know or maybe the answer is just no and you say I don't like that answer So I'm a little reluctant to acknowledge it because it, quite frankly, leads me to despair. So preacher, you know, why do you want that? And the answer is because that's the truth. You should be despondent. You should be in despair if you are in this world without the hope of Christ's righteousness. You must have God giving himself to you. And if you don't have that, you should be in just the most dreadful condition, constantly pleading with him, Lord Jesus, please come to me. Give yourself to me. I am without hope in this world, without your righteousness. I need that gift or I die. It's far better to be in despair in this world than to be in eternity in hell. Hopefully your despair drives you to Christ. It shows you your need of Him. And if that's what this passage does, that's the anger. How does the anger of God help us? It shows us there are people that literally get cast into the pits of hell for eternity. We don't want to be those people. I've never met anybody that wants to be one of those people. Well, how do we get out of that category? It's only through Christ's Gift of Himself to us. And that should be our prayer. That should be our desire is Christ coming to us. Well, let's just stop with some application. Why, why, why is the anger of Christ good for me? Why is it good for us? Why is it good for you? Number one, I think it encourages us to get grateful for God's love through the rage he displays. Get grateful for God's love through the rage. He, he displays rage to show us what's of value, to show us what matters to God. Who is considered that God's going to always get angry at those who don't revere him, those who don't fear him and worship him rightly? I mean, this begins to cut through this, this problem in America of everybody saying they're Christian. Who's really considered that God is angry at those who aren't worshipers? Look at the the chastening of God, the the good out of chastening. Look at Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. You know God chastens us, right? He comes. He's he's here. He does this. Uh, Hebrews 12, verse 5. Have you forgotten... The exhortations uh, which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do you ever regard discipline from God as, you know, well, I don't need this, God? He said, don't do that. Have you ever gone to your parents and told them thanks for spanking you? You should. At some, when you get When you get mature, that's what you'll do. You know, I think I was about 55. But anyway. At some point you you go to your parents and say, you know, the discipline was actually good. You you corrected me. I was on the wrong course. And that was good that that you corrected. And God is saying here, He says, Don't that's what we need to do. God, I I feel the chastening. Life is not sweet right now. I'm being chastened, God, but I know that's good for me. And so I'm grateful. He says, Don't faint. We'll keep on in Hebrews 12. Don't faint when you're reproved by him. God reproves us. We we need to say, Lord, I need this because obviously I need correction. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. I think that should have been the answer of everybody in John 2. All the priests who were in the temple, who were in the room, when Jesus comes in with this scourging whip, they should have bowed down and said, thank you, Jesus. We need this. We know we're corrupt. We know the, what we're doing in this place is wrong. And you're pointing it out. It's painful. It's not, it's not pleasant. But it's good. It's good to be scourged by you. So that we can get back to a worship that's pure and right. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure God Uh endure god deals with you as with sons for what son is there whom the father doesn't discipline but if you are without discipline of which you have become partakers then you are illegitimate children not sons you're not christians if you don't have god chastening you furthermore we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them shall we not much rather be subjected to the father of spirits and live for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Get grateful for God's love. God's love is many times demonstrated in his discipline, in his correction. Um, As I thought about that, what... What would it take for us as a church to be wholeheartedly welcoming Jesus in to our church with a whip? Would we invite Jesus in with a whip? Say, Jesus, please come in and purify us. Knock out of this place everything that is not reverent, that's not pleasing that's not consistent with your word. Lord, cleanse your temple. Cleanse your people. Fill us with your righteousness. Let it be about you. That's the gratefulness for the work of Christ. I think God wants of us. And I know, I know, I know plenty of local churches that are not welcoming Christ's whip. I hope we are. And by that I mean we need to be constantly saying are we doing it consistent with God's word, his way? Do we welcome it being changed and corrected as long as it gets us back to the Bible? Because if we're not getting back to the Bible we're usually going our own way. And we need the whip of God. Uh, Jesus Jesus Chastens us. Um, let Jesus come. Ask Jesus to expose. What What were the sins? Maybe sins of the heart. Greed. Can we ask Jesus to expose our greed? Selfishness. Our wanting something instead of wanting to give something. Living a lie, saying we're worshipers when clearly worship is not what was going on. It's the condition of the heart in John 2 that clearly is what matters, which is why you see Jesus evaluating people's hearts, not what they say and do, but their hearts. Do they really give themselves to him? Let's get grateful. Let's learn from the anger of God. We need to be grateful for God's Love and we need to give him love in return. That's what matters most. Number two, worship with God's purposes, not our selfish purposes. I referred earlier to, to Mark chapter eleven, verse seventeen, uh the parallel account here which says, He began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a robber's den. There's a few things there that we didn't have in John 2. House should be a house of prayer. We get that. That's, that's where you're giving something up to God. You're, you're worshiping. You're uh, seeking his presence. You're seeking his, his gifts, his righteousness. But also there's a phrase, it should be a house of prayer for all the nations. When you think about the nations should be coming to worship Christ. If they're coming to Jerusalem, if the nations are now coming there, uh, why would that be? If the nations come here, you know, why would that be? Then there would have to be a group of people who are paying to make that happen, who are open to make that happen, who are designed to make or to allow that to happen. Do we get excited about the? hundreds of people God is calling to himself to worship. I know lots of local churches that they don't want the nations in the church because that so, so changes us. Um, think that through you know somebody asked me last week uh, you know would we be different I think maybe with Jonathan worshiping or whatever and my answer is most certainly will be different. I said, we're different every time a new person joins the church. We're different. Everybody brings their gifts and abilities. That changes us. Our family just changed every time we get one more person. Are we up for that? But we're up for it if the worship isn't about us. If it's about this, is one more person to praise God. That's what we're about. The house should be filled with the nations, people who are gathered for this purpose of giving God their requests and doing it all with thankfulness and gratefulness. We have a tremendous ministry here at New Covenant that just overwhelms me at times. You look at the statistics; over we have over a hundred visitors every year, that we never invite. They just show up. Some of you are here this morning. Praise God. God's bringing us people to worship in this place. And some of those, uh, we're becoming more and more diverse from, from various nations. We want every tribe, nation, and tongue to, to worship God. It's about God. So are we committed to, to give God praise that we'll, we'll pay for that? If you're a visitor here um, this morning, I don't ever want a visitor to, to, to come and think, well, the only thing those people want from me is my money. Imagine the farmer's market, the temple, the money changers. Walk into that place, the only thing they want is my money. They want me to exchange this for this, and they make a profit, they want my money. They don't really care about me. They care about themselves. They're investing in themselves. They're investing in getting rich off of me showing up. Whereas Jesus says, throw all of that out and invite the nations in, which means we have to pay for it without making anything. And we should always be willing to tell our visitors, don't pay, don't don't give. We're very much willing to give for you so that you can hear about the glories of Christ. We're so grateful for what God has done in our life. We will pay the cost. Christ paid it all for us. So we're glad to pay for you. Don't pay a thing. Let us pay it for you because that's what our worship is about, giving to God what He wants so that He's pleased, so that the good news of Christ can go to many without cost. You see how the money changers missed all that? I mean, we don't want to miss it. We want to be grateful for God's love, and we want to worship without uh, selfish purposes to give to God. We... um, how do you know you're not greedy towards God? Greedy in worship. I mean that Christ clearly exposed it here. Like, you know you're not greedy, I think, when you're clearly giving to God what God has asked and what God requires or what God has designed. And not only giving that, but giving even more. That you know you're not greedy when you're you're overwhelmed with gratefulness, and it's like whatever you want. I, I, I'm, I'm glad to give it up. That's not a greedy hand. A greedy hand's I want to hold on to this. You can't have this. It's mine. Uh, a generous hand is take what you need, Lord. If God says, "Give me ten percent," okay, it's yours anyway. You gave me the whole hundred percent. I can live off ninety. I'll give you ten. Gladly, give me more than that. I I I want to build a sanctuary. I want to do this. I want. Okay, sure. You know you're not greedy when you want to give up. You know you're you're in this category. I'm, you're a genuine worshipper, not just somebody who believes in God. I believe in God, yeah, but I don't want to really invest in His worship. You know, it amazes me the number of people who don't want to invest in God's worship that claim to be believers. And we've had people here for 30 years who've, who've never given a dime. It's like, really? Got a nice house, nice cars, and would you entrust yourself to someone like that? Who never gives to God his due, his reverence, and even beyond that, I mean, you can evaluate that. It's, it's just, it, it's not about rules. It's about, God, you've saved me. What do you want? God says, Worship me, give to me, love me, adore me, build a house for the nations. God, you saved my life by all means. I'll do anything. I give, I pour out myself to you. Evaluate your greed, let it be exposed. See it in the context of Christ's anger at those who really don't want to worship. And then third, learn to worship as heart givers and not market consumers. You know, uh, years ago I wrote a little pamphlet on fundraising. Fundraising not to be done in the church. And it was all about this. That Jesus, who did he run out? He ran out the fundraisers. When you have... The church, and the church does not want to be a giver. The church does not want to be generous. The people with gifts and abilities to do business come in. And they say, well, we we can show you ways to generate income to run the church. Those are your fundraisers. They have gifts and abilities. You you can start making a profit. Not only will you have enough, you'll have more than enough if you'll do it this way. And, and those are the very people Jesus ran out. He says, I want people who, from the heart, just give to me, who fear me, who love me, who adore me, who don't have to be coaxed into it, who don't have to be, be told, well, you'll get this in exchange for this. He says, I don't like the exchangers, I'm the giver. I give my life. You don't exchange it with anything but sin, which I cast as far as the east is from the west. I mean, I give. All I want is worship. I mean, do we have that heartfelt response to God, or do we have that consumer mindset, well, what do I get? I loved Psalm 103 that, that Jonathan had us reading and singing uh, because it, all the way through the psalm, is. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Evaluate. When you come to church, or do you find yourself saying, bless the Lord or bless me, Lord? Big difference. Bless me, Lord. Give to me, Lord. I need this, this, and this, Lord. Or is it, Lord... It doesn't matter whether you ever give anything to me again. You've given to me Christ. If you've given to me Christ, how will you not with him freely give me all things? Bless you, Lord. Bless you, Lord. Bless you, Lord. I just want to give to you, Lord. You want singing? I'll give you singing. You want prayer? I'll give you prayer. You want 10%? I'll give you 10%. You want my kids? I'll give you my kids. You want my wife, my husband? I'll give you my whole household. As for me, in my house, we will worship the Lord. Are we consumers, or are we givers of God, to God, for all He has done? Let's pray. Father, it's tough to sit under the fire of Christ. He's a refiner. He's a purifier. And Lord, we're sinful. We're polluted. We're corrupt. We're selfish. Father, we need the refiner's fire. We need to be changed. We need the conversion that only Christ can create and cause. Make us new in Christ cleanse us take our sin O god make us the people who long to worship and adore praise and sing and give to you over and over and over may it all be for your glory and your honor for we ask in jesus name amen